Welcome to the Smell Yeah podcast. I'm your host, Irene Plax. Whether your sense of smell is unusually strong or you're the complete opposite, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. Smell yeah. You smell that? It's episode two, the link between taste and smell. In part one, the one and only Dr. Pamela Dalton explains how smell and taste work together to create our experience of flavor. You've probably noticed this at some point in life in some vague, unnameable way. She breaks it down for us, and it's pretty mind-blowing. Plus, hot tips on how to strengthen your sense of smell. Dr. Pamela Dalton, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Irene. Thank you. So you are a PhD in experimental psychology, and you have a master's in public health, and you do research at the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. All of the above is correct. (laughs) Could you talk to us a little bit about what you do exactly? Yes. Uh, There's really no good definition of what we do at Monell. Monell is one of the only research institutes in the world that's devoted to studying the chemical senses. The chemical senses are smell and taste primarily, but also the ability to feel chemicals in our eyes, in our mouth, on our skin. And so we have been doing this at Monell for 52 years. I've only been there for about 28 years, so I'm something of a youngster. But my lab studies how humans perceive these experiences. Um, I mostly focus on things that are airborne, that we can smell or that irritate us. But I also do work in taste as it combines with smell and, and trigeminal sensation, which is the chemical feel that I was referring to. So my research broadly tries to understand how people experience the chemical senses, whether it's something, a beverage or a food they're eating, whether it's the aroma of that food before they actually start to eat it, whether it's something in the background air that they don't understand what it is, how it alerts them. I I take the approach of trying to understand how those molecules actually interact with the biology of our system, and then how the brain interprets that experience, because that experience can differ depending on where we are, the context we're in, how we're feeling at any given time. So one of the things I think is interesting that distinguishes smell and taste from sight and sound, for example, is that they're based in molecules, they're chemosensory, whereas sight and sound are more of a wavelength, right? That actually is not only true, but it also is something that is unique to the system because when you experience a smell, you have physical molecules that have entered your nose, bound to the olfactory receptors. And in order for you to be able to smell again that same smell, those receptors have to clear those odor molecules. So, and the same thing is true with taste, which is why we can have aftertaste because the taste molecules can actually get embedded in our tongue and in the muc and the saliva, the mucus, and they have to be cleared out of there. So it's it's something different over sight and sound, where instantaneously, you know, a light wave is in your visual field and then it's gone. So a chemical senses poses some additional challenges for us. Like what? 
Well, number one, you can't repeatedly have someone experience something in a study over and over again in the same rapid fashion you can show somebody pictures or you can make them hear sounds because there is this adaptation, this period during which once the receptors have bound the molecules, they can't fire again until those molecules are cleared out of there. So it takes a lot longer to do research in the chemical senses because you have to put a lot of time in between each trial. And that makes it a little bit more challenging. And the clearing out that you're talking about, that is happening like actually in our faces, inside, <laughs> of, our, inside of our noggins, right? <laughs> Correct. So with smell, for example, um, one way is you breathe out and the molecules, once they've become dislodged from the receptor, just get exhaled. But some of them actually get trapped in the mucus that surrounds the receptors. And that mucus is actually flowing at a pretty fast rate from the top of your nose to the back of your throat, and then you swallow it. And that's one way to get them out of there. If you put a taste in the mouth, some of the molecules can stick around in the saliva until it's swallowed or they become unbound from the receptors. And that's why we sometimes can have tastes that persist for longer than the material, the food is actually in your oral cavity. Right. Like I'm thinking of garlic, for example. So whenever I talk about this project with people, people are like, oh, you know, like smell and taste are related. Can you talk to us about how you describe that relationship? Sure. So interestingly, when people drink or eat something, even though what they're doing is both tasting and smelling, they probably refer to the sensation as the taste of the food or the beverage, right? And they don't think of it as smelling their food or beverage once it's inside their mouth. They'll smell it when it's brought to them, you know, and it's sizzling and it's giving off those wonderful aromas. <clears throat> but once it's in the mouth, people tend to talk about everything that happens there as a taste sensation. But we know that's not true. And there are ways to demonstrate this to yourself that we can talk about. But basically, we think that taste has a, at most five or six different unique qualities, right? Sour, salty, bitter, uh, umami, and uh, sweet. Our sense of smell, however, has hundreds of thousands of different qualities of odors that we can experience. So, while taste is giving us that sensation of something being sweet or salty or bitter, it's the aroma, the retronasal aroma, which means that those molecules, instead of coming into our nose from the front of our nostrils, they're migrating up the back of our throat and hitting those same odor receptors. And it's those molecules that let us distinguish a strawberry from a cherry, from, you know, anything that tastes sweet, but has unique flavor volatiles going with it. And so that's something that people don't often realize just how much your olfactory system, your ability to smell your food, even when it's in your mouth, contributes to your experience of flavor. So that sort of explains why when you have a cold, for example, your sense of taste becomes really limited, even though it's your nose that's blocked. Right. When people get a cold and they're congested and their nose is blocked, they'll often say, I lost my sense of taste. I can't taste anything. What they're experiencing is taste in the absence of smell of the food. 
And so the reason is because the congestion is essentially blocking those odor molecules from coming up the back of the nose into the receptor area or even smelling things that are outside the nose. And so it really doesn't diminish our sense of taste at all, but it feels like it does because now there's this whole dimension of the flavor that's just gone. And everything is everything sweet is just a degree of sweetness or some things that are salty are just more or less salty. And so it feels like we've lost a lot. People have estimated, and I don't know that there's any really good way to judge this, but people have estimated that flavor is more smell than taste. In other words, that the experience, when you take away the, the, the smell component, it contributes more to flavor than the taste does. That's sort of debatable because people who have lost their sense of taste feel like they're chewing cardboard all the time. So that's a pretty distressing condition as well. I'll be talking more about smell loss and smell dysfunction in future episodes, but for this episode, it's really about the link between taste and smell. I was wondering if you could kind of describe for us the actual physiology of what happens when we put food in our mouths and like what goes down between our nose and mouth at that point. <laughs> okay. So let's say we have something that is sweet and also is going to have some, some aroma molecules associated with it. Um, we'll put a strawberry in my mouth. Okay. And so as I chew and, you know, chew and chew and chew the strawberry, um, you know, the, the sucrose or the fructose in that piece of strawberry is actually partitioning into my saliva and stimulating the taste buds on my tongue and in some cases on the sides of my mouth. At the same time, as I'm munching on it, I'm creating turbulence in a closed, a closed system, if you will. And so what I'm doing is I'm forcing air up the back of my throat into my nose, which where the receptors are right here. And so simultaneously, I'm getting a taste sensation, which is largely sweet, a little bit sour because fruits can have that component. And also all of the aroma molecules that are letting me know what kind of sweet, sour fruit I'm eating. So you've got the taste receptors that are being stimulated by the sweet in the, in the fruit or the sour as well. And then you have the odorant receptors that the air with those aroma molecules in it has been pushed up into the back of the throat and up into the nose area where the receptors are. And so that's how you simultaneously experience taste and smell. But because it's all happening in your mouth, or so you think, you tend to call it the taste of the food as opposed to the flavor of the food or the smell and taste of the food. We tend to think of smell as something that happens out here as opposed to something that happens in our mouth that then reaches the odor receptors. And those odor receptors, when you say here, you're pointing at the bridge of your nose right between your eyes. That's correct, yes. It's the case that with humans, our odor receptors are really pretty well protected. And so when we sniff something, it, it all of the aroma molecules may not make it to the area where the olfactory receptors are. They bounce around. We have these bony 
uh, turbinates in our nose that help direct the airflow is to say they're at the top of the nose and they're sort of right behind this bony plate here at the bridge of our nose. Um, because they're so isolated and because there's a patch that's very small that contains all of these receptors, it's actually something of a marvel that the aroma molecules get there. And how our nose helps is that we have these structures called turbinates, which are bones covered with uh, sort of tissue. And not only do they help to warm the air, humidify it, and filter some things out, but they also act as like little bumpers so that when the air molecules come in with aroma in them, they bounce around and have a better way of getting up to the odor receptors. So the turbinates kind of help with that a little bit. Um, and the same thing is true when we have aroma molecules from food or beverage in our mouth, that the act of swallowing, when you swallow, forces that air up into the back of our nose, the top of our nose where the receptors are. And so there's really two ways we can smell. The outside way is called orthonasal and the part of smelling when it's in our mouth is called retronasal. And the retronasal is the part that contributes to our, our sense of taste, right? Yes. Retronasal is the aroma that you experience when you're drinking a beverage, eating a food, and it's all part of what we call flavor, really, which is really more than taste and smell. Flavor also con is contributed to by some textural components or some some feeling components, right? Like warming of chili peppers or something that has mint in it that cools, you know, as well as you taste and smell it. Um, carbonation, you know, the bubbles, that tingling sensation from CO2. Those are really all subsumed under what we call flavor. But the smell part of flavor is really one of the biggest contributors to our experience when we're drinking and eating. And as you said earlier, anyone who has had a cold with a blocked nose knows just how uninteresting food becomes when you can't smell it. Right. And so there's this classic jelly bean test, which if any of our listeners want to try at home, um, it kind of mimics having a cold and the difference between being blocked and not, right? So correct. could you explain to us how the jelly bean test works? So basically, all you need to do, um, you can do it a little more high tech with a pair of nose plugs, <laughs> or you can just take your fingers and pinch your nose like this. And then you would put a jelly bean into your mouth and chew it. And probably what would happen is you would experience something sweet, depending on the jelly bean, it would probably be sweet. The minute you open your nostrils, all of that aroma is going to be forced up the back way, the retronasal pathway. It's going to hit those receptors, and you're going to know whether you put a lemon, a cherry, a root beer, a, you know, a grape jelly bean in your mouth, which you would not have known prior to that. And you can do this with almost anything. Sometimes if we're not using jelly beans, just take a little bit of like lemonade, for example, uh, pinch your nose, 
swish some lemonade around in your mouth for a second. You'll probably get sweetness, a little bit of tartness and sourness, but you won't really know what it is that you're actually drinking until you release that because blocking anything going in or out makes that sort of like a static box at that point. That's how you can test what you would experience when you lose your sense of smell. And it's really dramatic. I mean, most people that do it just kind of go, wow, I had no idea that so much of my ability to detect flavor was really just smell, not taste. So I want to go back to the textures you were talking about, like carbonation or um, cool and hot sensations. My understanding is that that's connected to the trigeminal system, right? It has to do with the trigeminal nerve. Absolutely, yes. It's a specific branch of the trigeminal nerve that innervates our eyes, our nose, and our mouth. And so any ability to stimulate that nerve Um, And it can be done with the same, you know, obviously, if you've ever gotten chili peppers, if you've been cutting up jalapenos, and you have the misfortune of rubbing your eye, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've been down that road before. Far more painful than putting it in your mouth. (laughs) I can can assure you of that. Um, So, you know, the same chemicals produce either warming, stinging, burning, cooling sensation. It's There are different receptors within the trigeminal system that actually, you know, uh, respond to those different chemicals in food. So for example, in chili peppers, it's capsaicin, and there's a specific receptor that binds to the capsaicin molecule and generates both warming and at low concentrations, a little bit of little bit of burning, uh, that sensation. At high concentrations, it can be quite painful. <laughs> so, because the trigeminal system is really part of the body's uh, pain system, somatosensory system, it's our, our ability to feel things. And sometimes it's pressure, sometimes it's temperature, and with chemicals, it can be those sensations that produce stinging, tingling, you know, burning all the way up to to clear pain, which we hope we don't get from food, but sometimes we overdo it. So if we're talking about the way that temperatures stimulate our nose and mouth, our ability to smell and taste, um, why is it that food, that flavor is so much more amplified when it's hot Mm -hmm. versus when it's cold? Well, one reason is probably because heat activates volatile molecules to a greater degree. So in think about the difference between a trash strike in the summer versus the winter. It's going to smell a lot worse outdoors in the summertime because as the temperature of the air heats up, the trash is going to liberate more of those volatile malodors <laughs> that is of the decomposing vegetables or whatever is in your trash can. And so temperature actually interacts with the molecules that are on the surface of a lot of different materials uh, and causes them to be more active and they rise up, they become airborne. So when something is heated, the same thing is true, whether it's a food or a beverage, you're going to liberate more molecules to become airborne or volatile. And that's going to 
not only change because some of the molecules that you might be smelling, even in a cold state, are really only one part of the aroma constellation that that beverage or that food will contain. So now when you heat it, you're going to liberate the ones that have, let's say, a higher molecular weight that don't that don't become airborne unless the temperature is at a certain degree. And so now you're going to have a fuller flavor. And the same thing is true with taste and, and aroma, the liberation. Now, the taste system can work a little bit differently because there you're actually coming in contact with the food and chewing it. But the aroma system really benefits from heating things because you're going to have much more of a bouquet of aromas from a food or a beverage as the temperature is increased. That's wild. Is there an example of a molecule you just mentioned that is really heavy and really needs heat to be liberated? Right. So, um, you know, some of the um, some of the must compounds, for example, are ones that really have you really have to start heating them to make them more volatile. Um, we use a rose compound, for example, that is also less volatile at room temperature, where things that are like you know, your, your, your citrus, um, you know, some of the citral, uh, the lyrol, those very light molecules, you can get them off of a cold, you know, experience as well. It's not so difficult, but yeah, you can just play around with this and heat foods or beverages to different temperatures. I mean, one classic description, of course, is with wine. I mean, there are, you know, if you if you over chill your wine, you will actually suppress a lot of the aroma molecules that actually make the wine worth drinking, right? And that's true even for white wine. There are there are temperatures that are appropriate for each of those. Does it have a different name besides taste and smell? Well, I mean, we talk about the smell system is called the olfactory system mm-hmm. and the taste system is called the gustatory system. So those are the two sort of scientific terms to describe smell and taste. Okay, but it doesn't have a name for both of them working together. No, not really. I mean, it's, you know, only only with respect to flavor do we do we consider them combined. But otherwise, because peripherally they are distinct, right? They both the, the sensations you get from the receptors in your mouth and the ones that you get from the receptors in the top of your nose go to very different places in the brain in the cortex initially, right? Um, and so there is a primary olfactory cortex and there's a primary gustatory cortex. But at some point, uh, generally with experience, those things that occur together, let's say um, a sweet and a fruit or, you know, a bitter and a vegetable, because they're paired over time, we develop representations in other parts of our brain where those two systems are actually combined. And so what we found some years ago is that when you have this very tight pairing between a taste and an aroma, that even experiencing one in the absence of the other can actually evoke the sensation that the two will provide. 
And you only need a little bit of one to actually make the other one more discriminable, more detectable, because they've become sort of a unitary representation in our brain at that point. And that's a function of experience. Wow. So that is literally how a flavor becomes acquired, an acquired taste. Yes. Yes. That's incredible. So our smell mail question from our listeners is, why does it sting when you get water in your nose when you jump in the pool? Ah, well, probably if your pool is chlorinated, it's the chlorine molecules that are stimulating those trigeminal receptors in your nose. And that stinging sensation is telling you that that wasn't a very good thing to do, <laughs> or you should have held your nose before you jumped in to, so you didn't force water up there. But yes, um, also just the water, just the mechanical force of the water going into your nose. Some of these receptors that respond to irritation are also pressure sensitive, touch sensitive. So you could have a sensation simply from just the water itself, but more than likely it's the chlorine in the water that's generating that stinging sensation. Got it. Do you have a scent vision for the future? Ah, I do. I want to be able to send an odor over the internet so that you can experience it the same way you can see a pattern of color or you can hear a sound. And we're not there yet, but I think we will learn in the next decade the ways that we can approach that. But that's something that I think would be very important to do. Um, even the ability to actually capture an odor in one place and transmit it electronically to somewhere else. You know, disease is often diagnosed by the way someone smells, their breath smells or their body smells. And so being able to, you know, with telemedicine, that's the one thing. You can see someone, you can hear from them, you can get a lot of information, you can do an EKG with, you know, remotely, but you can't smell them yet. And so I want to be able to do that because I think it's a really important part of diagnostics and I think it would be very valuable. Amazing. Um, do you have a tip you would like to share with the people? Um. I would say that my biggest tip, you know, I'm, I'm not young anymore, but I still smell very, very acutely. I can detect things that other people younger than me cannot. And so my tip is to just keep using your nose. Uh, think about it. Be mindful about smelling things. This is something we tell people who've lost their sense of smell to do with smell training. But it's useful under any circumstances. People who retain their sense of smell, and we don't know why, uh, tend to be healthier overall. Um, it, loss of smell may be correlated with other diseases, but it also, because it's such an important part of our emotional system in the brain, having regular olfactory stimulation may be a way to keep your brain healthy and to keep you, you know, moving healthily through later years. And so I think it's really important to try to smell something every day, something unique, something that you like, something you don't like, you know, but just keep using your sense of smell. So when you say be mindful about it, is there a question that you would have people ask themselves or would you just tell them to close their eyes and think about it? Anything in particular? Um, it's important to relate what you're smelling to some other mental representation, whether it's a picture 
of, you know, an image of what you're smelling, uh, an experience you had, a memory, let's say if it's a food related smell, something, you, you know, a recent memory where you experienced a food that has that. But you can also think about it in a way that actually, I, I think the connection between the semantic part of our brain and our, our sense of smell is very poor. We tend to, we tend to describe smells as sources. It smells like an apple, right? It smells like a pear or an orange, or it smells like, you know, a pizza. Um, you know, think about more about what the quality, does it smell different than it did yesterday or last week? You know, what, what, what's changed? Can you, can you identify? Sometimes you'll, you'll be able to even recognize that you're getting better able to smell it at weaker concentrations. So you could try bringing it in closer and then moving it away if you can still smell it because that's exactly what the system does. It responds very much to experience. It's an incredibly plastic system. And so the more we use it, the more it develops in ways that we don't always, can, can cannot always predict. Amazing. And is there anything else or is there anything that you're working on um, that you would like to plug or have, are you looking for research um, contributors on anything? Well, we certainly are. I mean, we're, we're, we're certainly involved in the, the post-COVID, post-viral smell loss research. And a lot of our research can be done remotely, but there are some aspects of it that we really do need to bring people into the center to be able to test. So if anybody's listening in the Philadelphia area that wants to be a participant in research, whether you've lost your ability to smell, we're very interested in that or not, you can go to our website, uh, which is www.monell.org. And there's a research page there where you can contact various studies that you might be interested in. Great. I'll post a link in the episode description. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this. This was fun, Irene. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Drop a question for our Smell Mail segment on Instagram at Smell Yeah Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean.